morning. Can I pray once more and then we'll jump in to God's word. God, we are so grateful for even the ability to sing together this morning. We just sang a profound line. We serve a good and gracious king, not of a small town, not of one nation, but of all of the universe. Psalm 103 says that our, our, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. We serve a good and gracious and sovereign king. And so, Lord, we pray that as we look to your word this morning, would you please fill us with your spirit? We pray with the psalmist, open our eyes, O God, that we may behold the wonderful things that are within your word. We pray this in your name and all God's people said, amen. The question is, what is God like? What is God like? Does he begrudgingly bestow mercy to people who need it? Is he hesitant to offer hope to those who have none? Now, the answer to this question can only be understood if God reveals or answers that question himself. It would be one thing for us to assess and determine that there is indeed a God, but it's another thing for us to know with great certainty, in the words of Francis Schaeffer, that he is there and he is not silent. God isn't playing hide and seek with his creatures as to his identity and character. He manifests himself in his word. And we're going to see the way that God reveals himself this morning in the book of Jonah. So would you turn with me to Jonah? We're going to be in chapter four, but I need to set the scene for you. In order to do so, I'm going to take the scenic route to get there. Jonah is in a section of your Bible in the Old Testament known as the Minor Prophets. And they're called the Minor Prophets not because of their significance, but because of their size. Jonah on the surface might be familiar to many of you this morning, but there is far more here than the veggie tale felt board stories that you've grown up hearing. This is a story that answers the question, what is God really like? Now in the Old Testament, the way that God revealed himself was through prophets. Prophets were nearest to the plan and purpose and promises of God. They didn't just know about God, they knew God. There was an awareness of his plan. There was an intimacy with his person. They were near to God. They experienced and employed his power. Now, two of the most prominent prophets in the Old Testament were Elijah and Elisha. Elijah was the one that would stand next to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was a figurehead of boldness and of faithfulness. He was the central figure in the face-off with the false prophets of Baal. He was the one who prayed, and for three years, not a single drop of rain fell from heaven. Elijah was the one who confronted the evil king Ahab. He was a highly respected and admired man of God. It was understood that Elijah would ascend to heaven, and when he arrived at the Jordan River, his assistant Elisha asked him for a double portion of the spirit that worked in Elijah. He's essentially saying, I want God to work in me and through me the same way that he has so powerfully worked in you and through you. And that's exactly what happens. Elijah takes his place as the prophet of God. People looked at Elisha following Elijah and they said, this is our guy. He is our prophet. When mocked for his baldness, a bear comes out and mauls 42 young men. When Naaman is leprous, Elisha heals him. When a young boy dies in 2 Kings 4, Elisha raises the boy up from the dead. But like Elijah before him, Elisha would soon go and meet his maker. And the question in the mind of every single Israelite is who would God raise up at such an important time? Who would stand in the gap? Who will bring the word of God's message to God's people? 
Now in the following chapter after Elisha's death, we read in 2 Kings 14, 25, that the boundaries of Israel were restored to their Solomonic borders, to the north and to the south. And then it says this, just as Jonah the prophet, the son of Amittai, the prophet of Gethhepher, Gethhepher had prophesied. Do you know how important the land of Israel is to the Israelites? Turn on the news. Turn on the news. And as the land is restored to their Solomonic borders, the people look around, they pause and they ponder and said, isn't this exactly what Jonah the prophet said would happen? Now we know who's up next. Elijah has gone. Elisha has gone. We no longer need to wonder who's next. Jonah is our guy. He is a man of God. He is intimate with the purposes of God. Jonah headlines the Shepherds Conference. He's a big deal. Get the picture? Now, in Jonah 1.1, it says that the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Turn back with me just so I can give you some context. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it. Now watch this. For their wickedness has come up before me. All of Nineveh's wickedness had come up before God. And the idea in the Hebrew is that the wickedness of the people of Nineveh was a great stench in the nostrils of God. It was as if all of Nineveh was crying out, sin here, God, sin over here. What you hate, right here. What you despise, right here. What's an abomination to you, God, right here. And it's coming up in the nostrils of God. Nineveh was the most brutal, violent, and idolatrous nation on earth. And in order to jog your memories as to their atrocities, the British Museum will give you an idea through the literature and art given to us from the Assyrian Empire. The Ninevites, one commentator says, used to build pyramids out of the severed heads of their enemies. They would burn cities to the ground. They would fill the lands with death and devastation. Entire countries were filled with corpses says that the rivers no longer would flow because rivers were full of dead bodies and the dead bones of their enemies. And the Ninevites would cut down opposing warriors like weeds. In addition, it says Nineveh was full of temples that were dedicated to the gods Nabu, Asher, and Adad. They worshiped Ishtar, a goddess of love and war. This is Assyria, and Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, the seat of this evil evil culture. And it says in Jonah 1 that God is enraged over the circumstances of Nineveh. But he calls on Jonah to go and proclaim to them a message that God is going to give them. And the question, and the question is why? Why does God do this? Why is he sending Jonah? Because it is always, always in the heart of God that to those whom he pronounces his coming judgment, that they would be stirred up to repent because he is a God of great mercy. He delights to extend mercy. And what we'll see in the book of Jonah is this is who God is, but this is too much for Jonah to handle. So if you're familiar with the story, you know that in chapter one, Jonah hears the word of God and he runs. And then in chapter two, he drowns and then he's swallowed by a great fish and then he prays. And then at the end of chapter two, he is spit up on dry land. And here our understanding or familiarity with the story of Jonah typically stops. 
But the story of Jonah is not a story about a great fish. It is a story about a great God who extends mercy. And in the final two chapters of Jonah, the curtains are really drawn and the real drama is about to unfold. In chapter three, God gives Jonah another chance and he bids him to go into the city and preach the message that God would give him. So Jonah goes into the city and preaches a sermon that consists of five Hebrew words, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's the sermon. And it says that immediately like wildfire, brokenness and contrition broke out amongst the people of God and they were just shattered over their sin before the God of Israel. And so let's look what happens at the end of chapter three. And it says in verse 10 of chapter three, that when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. The worst of the worst here in Nineveh, they don't just acknowledge that there is a higher power in the universe, but are truly broken over their sin. And it says that God turns in his anger from them. This is a preacher's dream to be used by God in such a powerful way, to bring about so much change and repentance. Many thousands have, been, have given their lives to be used by God in such a way. There's a city presumably here of 600,000 people and it says that they all turn towards God. But if you notice, there's a fourth chapter in the book of Jonah because the story's not over. It's an amazing story with an unusual ending the prophetic book of Jonah holds only one sentence of actual prophecy and the majority of it, of the 48 verses, is about the prophet and the character of his God. Now the question is, how does Jonah respond to his success? In our modern context, he would have rushed home and been pursued by publishers and producers for his upcoming new book, Preaching to Pagans by Jonah, son of Amittai, or Powerful Preaching by the prophet of Israel. But we see that Jonah comes home and we see, or he, he comes outside the city and then we see his response in chapter four, verse one. And there's immediate connection here to verse 10 of chapter three. He says, but it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. Stop there for a moment. What displeased Jonah? Well, the fact that God had extended mercy. Picture the scene with me. All of Nineveh hears Jonah's preaching. It's a simple, simple message. And they understood three profound realities from that short sermon. Number one, that their sin was great. It was an offense to a holy God. Number two, that their time was short. You have 40 days. And number three, that their judgment was sure. And this is all that they need to repent. And in those 40 days, there is a prayerful hope, but no presumption upon the mercy of God. There's no guarantee in their mind that if we turn, there's this idea that God will forgive us because there was no qualification. Jonah doesn't go into the city and say, unless, he just says, this is going to happen. But look real quick back at chapter three, verse nine. The king says, who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. And we see that this is exactly what God does. But on the contrary, let's visit Jonah. The idea here is that he preached his sermon 
and he doesn't stick around in the city to disciple them and to answer their questions about God or the Bible and to tell them about his profound love. The idea here is that he goes to an outside city and while the people are outside hill and while the people are praying for mercy, Jonah is there sitting upon a hill praying for the outpouring of God's wrath. Day 34, do it, God, do it. Day 35, bring your judgment upon them, God, do it. Day 36, do it, do it, God. You'll be a mockery, do it. Day 39, last chance, God, you better pour out your wrath on these wicked people. Day 40, no judgment, just mercy, but much anger from Jonah. I'm thankful for this inclusion in the Old Testament because the men that have been so clearly used by God are always brought back to mere mortals by the transparent inclusion of their sin in the Bible, right? Abraham lied. David murdered, Noah got drunk, and, and then we see even more examples. See that Peter denied Jesus, Moses disobeyed. And here in chapter four, Jonah resents the very mercy that had saved him. The irony here is so thick. The pagan people are repentant and broken, but Jonah is furious and fuming and frustrated over the thought that God had extended mercy why is Jonah angry? Well, I think for a couple of reasons. Jonah is angry for Jonah's sake. He's angry for Jonah's sake. The criteria for a prophet is clear in Deuteronomy 18, that you would know if they were indeed a true prophet if their prophecy came to pass. So Jonah's reputation is on the line. He said this is gonna happen, and if it doesn't come to happen, then he's gonna be a mockery in his own mind amongst his people. He is more concerned with his own name than he is with God's name. But I like what Sinclair Ferguson says. He says, God, though, is far more concerned about the salvation of the lost than he is the preservation of the reputation of those who have already been saved. Secondly, Jonah is angry for Israel's sake. Jonah's issue was that he knew that the Assyrians would likely be the ones who would be the instrument of God's wrath towards the Israelite people because of their continued disobedience. Jonah is concerned for the Jewish people. It would be like knowing that in 25 years from now there is a, a terrorist group of people that are going to destroy your family and your nation and then being commissioned by God to go and save them in order that that slaughter could actually come about. He's angry. Jonah believes that the people of God deserve mercy but the Ninevites deserve wrath. But there's something, there's something more here. Jonah is going to articulate exactly why he is mad. And in his anger, he will profess one of the most profound declarations of the character of God in all of scripture. And the irony here is that this great profession of the character of God is going to be made by someone who has zero resemblance to the character that he confesses. His heart has not been changed by this character, he knows its truth, but he is seething mad when the realities he's about to profess are extended to other people. Look at verse two. He says, therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God. We just saying that. And compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. 
Therefore now, verse three, O Lord, please take my life, for death is better to me than life. Jonah says, I'll tell you exactly why I ran. It's because I knew it, God. I knew it. I knew you were so merciful. I knew you were gracious. I knew you were compassionate. You're always true to yourself. It's wrong of you to extend mercy to others, but it makes sense when you extend mercy to me. After all, I'm me. Jonah was restored by God's grace, but he doesn't want to restore, or God for, to restore anyone else. Jonah's confession with his lips is less important to him than the conformity of his life to the confession he makes. I wanna examine this verse closely. It's so rich and wonderful. S. Lewis Johnson calls it the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. Jonah proclaims that God, first here, is gracious. This is the great theme of this small book. God is a gracious and merciful God. If anyone ever told you that the Old Testament is a story about this judging and wrathful God and the New Testament is a story about God's love and mercy, they have likely never understood or read the book of Jonah. Our immutable, which means changeless God, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, is defined here as a gracious God. He is eager to save the lost, and he delights in extending mercy. But not only is God gracious, he says you are gracious and compassionate. He shows great pity to the pitiful. He isn't aloof. He isn't indifferent. He doesn't care less about the suffering or the plight of people that are his creatures. He is moved with compassion towards the lost. Jonah says, I can't handle this about you, God. You're gracious, you're compassionate, and you're slow to anger, he says. God is patient. What a prayer this is. And here is Jonah with just such a a short fuse, proclaiming that God has a long fuse Maybe there's someone in your life that snaps and that has that type of a temper, a short fuse. Maybe that's you, maybe that's a friend, but that's not God. He has a long fuse. He is slow to anger. He is patient. He is slow in bringing about his justice. Why? Because he longs for people to come to repentance. And then Jonah says, you are abounding, abundant in loving kindness. This is God's has said love. It's a very special word in the Bible. It refers to God's covenantal kindness and love towards those who are undeserving. This is God's patient, intentional, personal, constant love. And God is abounding in that love, meaning he's not rationing off his love to different people. The scripture says that God is love, not that he is only love, but he is love because he is abounding in loving kindness. What a profound declaration from a rebellious and sinful man. This verse shows us that it is possible to make a great proclamation of God's amazing grace and matchless mercy, but not have our heart changed by that grace and not have our heart molded and softened by that mercy. God has been soft and kind and compassionate to Jonah, but Jonah is hard and hateful towards the Ninevites. Now the question is, how does God respond to this belligerent, disobedient, rebellious prophet? Does he strike him dead? No, the way that God responds is in accordance and conformity to the character that Jonah had just professed. He is kind to God and what he does is he asks Jonah a question in verse four. 
Now, before we get to that question, I want you to just think with me that the way that God typically responds to wayward people in the Bible is by asking them a question. And the questions that he's asking are not because God is looking for answers, because he doesn't need any answers. He's omniscient. He already knows all things. But he asks probing questions because they're a means of evaluation and examination to the person that he's asking. Now, if you remember with me, when Adam and Eve sin, it is God who comes to them, the one who sees everything. Hebrews 4 says, everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him who sees everything. But he still comes to Adam and Eve and says, well, where are you? Why are you hiding? What have you done? Did you eat of the tree that I told you not to eat to or eat of? When Elijah runs and he's doubting God and he's hiding in a cave, God comes to Elijah and says, why are you running, Elijah? When Job questions God, God returns and says, gird your loins. I'm gonna ask you some questions. And this is what God does, and he does this to stir us up. And in chapter four, God is gonna ask Jonah a series of questions, and those questions function as the climax of this short book. Look with me at verse four. He says, the Lord said, do you have a good reason to be angry? Well, there's no answer to this question because there is no good reason for Jonah to be angry. The answer is so obvious. Jonah's heart should have been pricked by this probing question, yet he still is longing for the city to be destroyed. God says, Jonah, think with me. They repented at the hearing of my voice. You didn't repent until I had you swallowed by a great fish. And what unfolds in the remaining verses is God is going to lay out a drama for Jonah where he provides a plant, a worm, and a wind in order to teach Jonah a lesson about the heart of God. He says, Jonah, you might know every answer, but you don't really know my character. So he says in verse five, then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. And there he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen to the city. Jonah makes for himself a little booth. This is kind of even what we talked about a couple weeks ago during the Feast of Tabernacles. He constructed himself, it's the same word there, used, and it's, it's a functioning as a little resort, if you will, a, an oasis in the desert. He did this for a couple reasons. In northern Iraq, which is where the Assyrian Empire was located, it was very hot. And so Jonah is building this little shelter so that he can watch and see if God actually brings about his wrath on the city of Nineveh. Now watch this in verse six. So the Lord God appointed or provided a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. This isn't some rare plant that God or that Jonah coincidentally sits next to. This is a miracle. God causes a great plant to grow overnight, to shield him and to save him from his discomfort and the heat of the Near Eastern desert. Listen to the irony here. How does Jonah respond? It says that Jonah is elated. He's extremely happy about the plant, like a bride walking down the aisle. Jonah goes from being ticked off that God hadn't exercised his mercy, and then overnight a plant grows, and it says that he is exceedingly happy. He's fired up. Verse seven. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. 
And when the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all of his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. So now the God who had provided a great plant will provide a small worm and it's going to gnaw away at Jonah's shade-giving plant. And then what we read is that the Lord turns up the heat, so to speak, and summons a great wind and the scorching heat. Now, the significance of this great wind is lost on many of us who live in a westernized environment. We live our lives behind walls and behind computer screens, but these great winds would have been an appointment with great discomfort, if not grave danger and even death. But not only is there this scorching wind, there's the sun-searing rays And what we're going to see is that God uses these rays and winds to blow and melt away Jonah's hypocritical exterior. Jonah is throwing himself a pity party. In verse 8, it says, He begged God with all of his soul, meaning with everything in him. He's begging to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. Think about this rebellious, runaway, rogue prophet whining and complaining what God has done Jonah says, take my life. I can't handle this heat. I can't handle this wind. I can't handle your mercy. Kill me. How is God going to respond? To a man that is so opposed to his will and his heart, how does God respond? Well, God responds in verse nine by asking him another question. Then God said to Jonah, do you have a good reason to be angry about the plant. We are reaching the climax here of this short book. God is saying, Jonah, do you have a reason to be angry about this plant? Did you make it? Did you plant it? Did you cultivate the garden in which it would grow? Did you water it and shield it and nurture it and provide for it? Is this plant made in your image? Do you actually have a good reason to be angry? This plant was, was planted overnight and here you are furious and saying you want to die because something you cared for for a matter of minutes has now withered away. It says, Jonah, these people, the Ninevite people, I didn't make them overnight. No, I care for them. I formed and fashioned them in my image. I love them, Jonah. Don't you get it? The whole book is rising towards this question. So do you do well to be angry? Do you have a reason to be angry? Jonah, don't you understand? Verse 9b, and he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Jonah's response is angry, angry. I'm so angry I could die. Now watch this. The gentle yet stern instruction of God. These final two verses in Jonah are so important. Listen to God's response in verse 10 and 11. He says, Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Jonah, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons, who do not know the difference between the right and the left hand, as well as many animals. God exposes Jonah. Jonah cares more for plants than he does for people. He cares more about his own comfort, his own safety, his own reputation, notoriety, 
than he does about God reconciling sinners to himself. Jonah cares more for the temporal and inanimate than he does for the eternal created souls of people. God says, Jonah, there are 120,000 people here that don't know their right hand from their left hand. We presume them to be children. And it's a great city. And God is drawing Jonah's attention to the hundreds of thousands of people that don't know God. They're lost. They're gonna go into an eternity in hell. And God is asking Jonah the question, and because God's word is living and active, he's asking us a question. Is there anything in your life more important than seeing lost people reconciled to God? Is there anything in your life that you're more concerned about than to see unconverted sinners know the mercy of God in Christ? Questions are helpful because it helps us do inventory. There's no answer, that's the end of the book. So we don't know how Jonah responds because the answer is really in some ways left up for us to decide. Presumably Jonah would have written this so he included it. But what a contrast between Jonah and his God. What a contrast between this earthly Jonah and the one who would come and say that he is the greater Jonah namely Jesus Christ. I wanna read for you Matthew 12, verses 40 and 41. This is Jesus. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Indeed, something greater than Jonah was here. Someone greater than Jonah was here. The prophet Jonah was asking for fire from heaven, but the greater Jonah has a heart of mercy. The prophet Jonah won't lift a finger to help the lost, but the greater Jonah came, Luke 19.10, to seek and to save the lost. The prophet Jonah doesn't remain in the city because he desires wrath. The greater Jonah comes and looks over the city and weeps because his heart is broken over those who would reject him. The earthly Jonah is selfish. He's a selfish man who doesn't think beyond himself. The greater Jonah comes and humbles himself and becomes obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The earthly Jonah seeks destruction. The greater Jonah seeks reconciliation. The prophet Jonah thinks mercy is for saints. And the greater Jonah comes and offers mercy only to sinners. I need to ask you a question. Are you like Jonah? Do you care more for your job, your pets, your hobbies, sports, than you do about what God cares the most about? Being an imitator of God means more than just some sort of an idea. It's a conformity to what God cares about, what he's passionate about, and what's so obvious in his character we started this morning by asking the question, 
what is God like? And the answer that Jonah gives us is so obvious. God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. And he bids those of us who have received that love, tasted that compassion, to extend it to other people, to demonstrate it to other people. Turn with me real quick to Psalm 103, and we'll close here. I want to read 1 uh, through 4 and then 8 through 12. And we'll see where Jonah got this very idea. In the belly of the great fish, Jonah had no original thought to his own. He was reciting almost exclusively the Psalms. And when Jonah brings God before the bar of his own justice, he's reciting God's word back to God. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. Verse eight, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins. Can you say amen to that? Nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us.